It certainly is so good for each of us to be able to assemble together this Sunday afternoon. Sometimes, as we often give thought to what better way could you and I choose to select to close out a Lord's Day than this one. Already today, many of us have had an opportunity to assemble and to gather, and yet to, as the shades of evening gather about us, to again enjoy that privilege. As you probably have already noticed on the wall to my left, we're continuing a series of lessons this evening. I'd like to ask you to ponder the Old Testament for a moment tonight. I realize that's a lot of books, but we're going to give some appreciation to the nature of how that fits into our continuing saga, Touching the Making of the Bible. For many of us, as we think about that Old Testament, certainly we appreciate so many interesting and powerful revelations of things that occurred so long ago, and yet perhaps it's a worthwhile question about the nature of when those books were written and the characteristics attached to the confidence that one ought to be able to have in them. Maybe with that in mind, here are just a very few introductory remarks placing this particular lesson in the entire series that you and I are now considering. We began that series of lessons two weeks ago this evening by looking at the nature of the book itself. And tonight we've sung songs about the Holy Bible, Book Divine. Give me the Bible. And you and I treasure it. We love it. That opening lesson brought it to our mind. The features about its inspiration, its authoritative nature, the characteristic of the love you and I should have for it. It is with that in mind that brought us to the next lesson. Last Sunday, we looked at writing, and we found that the writing, the languages in which God, in fact, inspired the Bible originally to be written, those were things that helped us appreciate some interesting things that can really help us understand better certain parts of the Bible. Tonight, let's go a step further. Look at the Old Testament in particular. Now, maybe I should use this as an appropriate time to say that I would think that we might be want to spend a little bit longer in relation to the New Testament. And so likely next Sunday evening, we're going to turn our attention to it and find that there's again so much worthy of consideration. Faith building, confidence building matters as it relates to that precious book all of us treasure so much. But tonight the Old Testament is what's before us. On the next slide, let's then begin our study in earnest by making note of a few of the basics attached to that Old Testament. Perhaps you and I know so well some 39 books comprise it, Genesis all the way to Malachi. And yet as you think about the fullness of those books, you and I have learned from an early age they rest within that section of the Bible known as the Old Testament. Perhaps that particular word is not the most happy one that might have been chosen. When you and I think about, say, Hebrews chapter 8, the Old Testament is referred to as the Old Covenant. That would have been a better term because it does highlight the word covenant and it highlights the features characteristic of an agreement, a pact, a setting forth of doctrines touching a particular matter. So it is, though, with respect to that Old Covenant, the Old Testament. We learned last week that mostly it's written in Hebrew originally. There were a few Aramaic sections, admittedly, but by far the most of it was written in that ancient language known as Hebrew. Now, there are still those in our world that speak something like Hebrew, but in terms of the nature of what it was used in its writing, we go all the way back to those times of the far distant past. Consider this. I wonder about the date when those books of the Old Testament were written. 
I mentioned a moment ago Genesis all the way to Malachi. This particular thought seems to me worthy of our consideration. Now, some of those Old Testament books can be dated reasonably well. Others of them, however, are very challenging. The book of Job, for instance, is one that seems particularly challenging. Have you ever noticed in the reading of the book of Job, there is no mention at all of the Levitical priesthood. There's no mention at all of the tabernacle. There's no mention at all of the things that you would think would have been mentioned if it had been written after the days of Exodus chapter 20. That certainly leads one to wonder, could it be that Job really was written at a much earlier date than that, and maybe it really fits more naturally into the patriarchal era? If that be true, you and I could see in the book of Job, perhaps that is the oldest Old Testament book. I say perhaps, we just do not know. The fact of the matter is, if that book were written at about 2000 B.C., that means it was written roughly 4,000 years ago from the present day. Now, even if it were not written at that early date, it's also fair to comment, we know the books of Moses, Genesis through Deuteronomy, at least were written around 1500 B.C., and that would mean that they were written about 3,500 years ago from our present modern hour. I believe all of that raises in our minds some interesting considerations. Namely, if these books were written that long ago and they have been translated and copied and others have in fact throughout the centuries brought them down to our day, can we still have confidence that what you and I now read is the Old Testament as God delivered it? That's a great question. It really is. I would hope as you and I continue that description Sometimes it's useful to embed in our thinking sometimes as it relates to certain portions of the Old Testament. I've selected only three. You may notice, first of all, Moses. If we have to keep in mind, the year 1500 B.C. is about when Moses lived. That's about when the exodus from Egypt happened. That's about when he wrote the books, the first five books of the Old Testament. Again, that's 3,500 years ago from today. Not only that, what about the man David who occupies such a central station within the pages of the Old Testament? Remember the time, 1000 B.C. That's about when David lived. That's about when he reigned as king, the second king of Israel. And of course, from our day today, that's 3,000 years ago. The very last book in the Old Testament is known as Malachi. When you think about that book, think about the year 430 B.C. So it was written well over 600 years after, or roughly 600 years following the days of David. And that's the last inspired book in the Old Testament. Maybe in light of all those things, putting all that together, the Old Testament itself was written in a span of at least 1,100 years and maybe as much as 1,500 years that's a long time, isn't it, to think about the comp composition of a set of books. And yet they related to each other and they presented a continuing strand of the marvelous truth and wisdom of God. The next comment I would ask you to notice brings us to the way in which those 39 books are divided. Perhaps as a youth we can remember that in our Sunday school classes, our Bible teacher helped us learn those books of the Old Testament. There are five books of law, Genesis through Deuteronomy, and those were the ones written by Moses. They're for the first five books of that Old Testament. But following that, we have 
12 books of history, starting with Joshua and going all the way to Ezra. We appreciate in Ezra and in the days of the considerations concerning all of them, the features characteristic of that particular point in time. A lot of years are covered in that span. I would ask you to notice as you think about them, they're followed by five poetical books, the five books of poetry, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Solomon. Now, they have a very different narrative style. They have a very different kind of presentation. The Old Testament closes with 17 books of prophecy, commencing with Isaiah and finishing all the way at Malachi. Sometimes those 17 are divided into two sections. There's five books of major prophecy and 12 books of minor. Any way we look at it, books of prophecy. I mention it that way for the following reason. That's not the division characteristic of the Hebrew Bible. Remember, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, and if you and I were to open today a Hebrew Bible, if you have a Jewish friend and they have a copy of a Hebrew Bible and you open it up, you won't find 39 Old Testament books. You'll find a very different arrangement, and I've tried to highlight it briefly by observing it seems as though the New Testament writers help you and me to appreciate that structure and that particular division. Brother Dennis read a moment ago from the 24th chapter of Luke. In verse 44 of that chapter, Jesus Himself in speaking made reference to the law and the prophets and the Psalms. That was referred to, or that was identified by the Jews as three of the principal characteristics of the divisions of the Old Testament. I have a diagram that I wanted to use to highlight that. Now, you'll notice on this particular diagram, if you read left to right, you'll notice these are the recognized divisions of the Hebrew Bible. On the left is the law. They recognized it as the most important part of the Old Testament. It consisted of five books, the first five written by Moses, Genesis through Deuteronomy. But following that, you'll notice they had a section known as the Prophets. You may notice that's the second one Jesus listed in Luke 24:44. In that list of the prophets, I would ask you to notice there's Joshua and Judges, Samuel and Kings, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the Twelve. Let me make a few comments if I might. In that top list, you'll notice they only had one reference to Samuel, whereas you and I have a first and second Samuel. They only had one reference to Kings. You and I have a first and second Kings. They grouped all of those in terms of just a book of Samuel or a book of Kings. But at the bottom, I might ask you to notice, the twelve are the minor prophets that you and I reference, the last twelve books of the Old Testament, beginning with Hosea and ending with Malachi. They grouped all of them as one book. You begin to notice something interesting, I hope. We'll wrap it up by noticing, look at the books that are in that section known as the writings over at the far right. You'll notice the very first book in that section is Psalms. Often the Hebrews would refer to the Psalms as the full representative of that final section. And Jesus did the same. But you'll notice there's Proverbs and Job. You'll notice the Song of Solomon, Ruth, Lamentations, Esther and Ecclesiastes. And then finally, Daniel. Ezra and Nehemiah, and the Chronicles. Now a moment ago, I made a statement, and perhaps it alarmed you. 
I made the statement if you open a Hebrew Bible, you won't see 39 books. You'll see far fewer. If you count that, it only comes out to about 22. And so one might wonder, where did all the extra books come from? It's only a matter of categorization. All of the books in your Old Testament and mine are there. It's just they labeled them in differing sections. That's greatly comforting to us, isn't it? As you look at that particular listing, looking at those features and attributes of the Old Testament, let us go back to the previous slide to make one final comment. It seems intriguing to me, and it appears that the very observation that's in that has an interesting highlight to one passage in particular that we find within the pages of the New Testament. As you read through the book of Luke, this is also recorded in Matthew, but there is a particular passage that occupies a bit of an intrigue in the sense that in Luke eleven fifty one, Jesus was discussing a particular matter with the group gathered before Him on that occasion. And He made reference to from Abel to Zechariah. Now you and I know exactly who Abel was. He was the very first person ever killed in the Bible. His brother killed him. One might even say he was the first martyr as he stood for the truth and his brother didn't appreciate it. But who was Zechariah? And why did the Lord mention him? It seems to me that division you and I just noted may well answer that. If you think back to that division, there was the law and the prophets and the writings. Abel was the first martyr in the very first section. Zechariah is the last martyr in the last section. Jesus was in essence saying from first to last, those who have been faithful to me are those whom God knows very well. For you see, Zechariah is mentioned in 2 Chronicles chapter 24. And remember, that was the last book in the last Hebrew section. Intriguing, isn't it? And yet, as the Lord made reference to all the fullness of those martyrs and the presentation of God's faithfulness with respect to them, it appears that was the way Jesus was helping His listeners appreciate the fullness of God's Old Testament provision. Maybe as we proceed to our next observation, let's in fact proceed on to this one. Those Old Testament books, we've learned about the divisions, both in the English and in the Hebrew Bible. But I'm sure that one of the next questions that so readily appears to us is, what about the manuscripts? We learned last week about the parchments and the other surfaces on which it might have been written. Do we still have copies of these books that date roughly back to the time they were written? The answer is no. The very first statement on that slide reads like this. The oldest manuscript copies that we have of the Old Testament are dated at 895 or at 1008 A.D. Now notice, that's only about a thousand years ago. And yet we studied earlier these books were written sometimes upwards of three to 3,500 years ago. That's a long time between when the last one of them was written and the earliest original copies that we've got. To some, that might appear very problematic and it might appear very troubling. Let's develop it more thoroughly by noting this. Think about the production of copies of that Old Testament. We stated earlier, and of course it encompasses what for you and for me today is 929 chapters. That's how many chapters in the Old Testament. 
in terms of verses, that's over 23,000 verses. The printing press was not developed. It wasn't invented until the middle of the 15th century A.D. Any copy of that Old Testament that was made had to be made by hand. A scribe had to sit down and meticulously and carefully copy letter by letter every one of the letters of the Old Testament in order to make a copy of that Old Testament. No wonder then the production of a copy was exceedingly time-consuming. Some have estimated that it took one scribe one year to make one copy of the Old Testament. That's a long time. Now, that in fact isn't the entirety of that story. Because you may reasonably notice, that still might suggest that as highly respected as the Jews considered the Old Testament, why aren't there any older copies than what we've got? Here's another truth that seems to me to be very interesting. Those scribes and those Jews who looked upon the Word of God with such care and such respect, they looked upon it like this. Any copy of the Old Testament Scriptures that reached its age, if you please, it began to be worn, it began to be unusable, it was not just placed upon a shelf. They buried it. They had such high respect for it, they never wanted it to fall into the hands of anybody that might mispronounce the name of God within it. And therefore, they buried it. That likely is why we have so few copies, old copies of the Old Testament. Can you imagine a scribe taking an older copy of, one after the, of the Scriptures after he just finished a new one, and he carefully conceals it and buries it in the ground? Well, obviously, over time, of course, those have long since deteriorated. Maybe that's the central reason why we have so few copies, old copies of that Old Testament. However, before we finish the lesson tonight, we will buoy ourselves by appreciating that what we do have is such that we can have the utmost of confidence within it. Let's look even further. Case in point comes with the particular group of people. Maybe you've heard of them. M-A-S-S-O-R-E-T-E-S. -S -S -E the Masoretes. If you've never heard of them, it's well worth our while to think about the work they did. These were a group of people who lived roughly between the year of 500 and 1000 A.D. They had within their possession, or at least access to, very treasured copies of the Old Testament Scriptures. Might I say, these gentlemen, these people, you and I owe a great deal of debt to them. I think we noticed it last Sunday evening. The Hebrew, as it was originally written, it had no vowels in it. It was a system of 22 consonants. That means you and I today would have no idea how to pronounce most of the Old Testament words. We need vowels to tell us how to pronounce the syllables. We need A and E and I and O and U and sometimes Y. Hebrew had no vowels within it. The people who spoke Hebrew in the Old Testament era, they knew how to pronounce those particular words. They still understood the nature of the pronunciation. The Masoretes provided a system of vowels and accents. They understood the fact that as time passed, there would be fewer and fewer people able to pronounce correctly the original Hebrew. And they took it upon themselves to provide a system of accents and vowels such that the pronunciation could still be understood. Not only that, they had an impressive system of counting. 
Let me develop that a little bit more carefully if I might. Counting. They were so meticulous in relation to the Old Testament Scriptures. They had a system of counting by which they knew exactly the number of words that had a particular letter in it. And they knew exactly how many times a certain letter in a given book occurred. And not only that, they knew exactly what the middle verse was for any given book as well as any section of a book. And they used that system of counting as a powerful check to ensure that they had made no mistakes in copying it. Every time they finished a line, they could go back and count where a given letter ought to occur. And if it didn't match the original, that particular copy was scrapped. Not only that, upon completing an entire book, they could look with care to find the place where the middle letter ought to occur on the right line. And if it didn't occur there, they knew they'd made a mistake. Or upon completing an entire section, they could find where the middle verse ought to be. And if it didn't match on the page exactly where it ought to be, they knew there'd been a mistake. These individuals were that meticulous in the way they copied the Scriptures. It is true, in addition to that, and I've listed for you the middle portions, at least in Hebrew, of where they would occur. The middle verse occurred in the Pentateuch in Leviticus 8, verse 7. The middle verse in the, in the Hebrew Old Testament, Jeremiah 6, verse number 7. There's one more thing at the bottom of that slide that I wanted you to note. I made the brief comment, the value of a line of text. Let me explain that if I might. As I researched the work of the Masoretes, this is also what they would do. Each of the Hebrew letters has a particular numeric value attached to it. So what you and I would say is the letter A, there was a numeric value to it. The letter M had a numeric value to it. Every time a line was completed, they could go back and add up the numeric value of the letters they had used. And if it didn't match the value that should have been true for the original, they knew they had used a wrong letter somewhere. Think about doing that throughout every line of Old Testament text. Can't we be impressed with their meticulousness? No wonder it took a year to copy every single copy of the Bible. As you think about all of that, though, there's still one more thing to know. The Masoretes, and let me share with you a particular statement. In order for them to make a copy of the Scriptures, there were certain rules that they had to follow. This is a somewhat lengthy paragraph, but I think it's well worth our attention. A synagogue roll must be written on the skins of clean animals, prepared for the particular use of the synagogue by a Jew. These must be fastened together with strings taken from clean animals. Every skin must contain a certain number of columns, equal throughout the entire codex. The length of each column must not extend over less than 48 or more than 60 lines, and the breadth must consist of 30 letters. The whole copy must first be lined, and if three words be written in it without a line, it is worthless. The ink should be black, neither red, green, nor any other color, and be prepared according to a definite recipe. An authentic copy must be the exemplar from which the transcriber ought not in the least to deviate. No word or letter, not even a yod, must be written from memory, the scribe not having looked at the codex before him. 
Between every consonant, the space of a single hair or thread must occur. Between every word, the breadth of a narrow consonant must occur. Between every section, the breadth of nine consonants must occur. Between every book, there must be exactly three lines. The fifth book of Moses must terminate exactly at a line, but the rest need not do so. Beside this, the copyist must sit in full Jewish dress. He must wash his whole body, and he must not begin to write the name of God with a pen newly dipped in ink. And should a king address him while writing that name, he must take no notice of the king. The roles in which these regulations are not observed are condemned to be buried in the ground or burned, or they are banished to the schools to be used as reading books. That's taken from a particular copy of several research books I was able to find descriptive of the work of the Masoretes. As you finish that particular slide with me, may I ask you to notice a few other thoughts as it relates to these Old Testament manuscripts. Probably one particular Old Testament document, or at least relation to it, that you and I have heard so much about is called the Septuagint. The Septuagint is a translation from the original Hebrew Old Testament into Greek, and it occurred about the 2nd or 3rd century B.C. Now, you and I had learned that the last Old Testament book was probably written a couple of hundred years prior to the making of the Septuagint. The reason the Septuagint occupies such a vital role for us is because of some of these comments. Namely, that is the version of the Old Testament to which Jesus and the apostles had the freest recourse. That was their version of the Old Testament. They had access to the Septuagint. Now that word Septuagint perhaps makes us think of the number 70. And history says that there were 70 scholars who labored in Egypt in the making of, the, of that Septuagint so that that copy could be housed in the library in Alexandria in Egypt. Whether that be so or not, History has a difficult time saying for sure, but at least that's the legend that goes with it. Maybe in fairness, you and I would notice at least that's an important thing to observe. The next important thing to note is this, the famous Dead Sea Scrolls. Imagine the excitement, maybe you and I have felt a bit of that excitement as we've read somewhat about the Dead Sea Scrolls. We learned earlier that the oldest copies of the Old Testament we have are only dated a little over a thousand years ago. And yet something interesting happened in 1947 as well as in 1948. There was a Bedouin boy in the Dead Sea area of what you and I would call Palestine. A goat had gotten lost and he went into a cave looking for the lost goat. Amazingly enough, within that cave, this Bedouin boy found a number of scrolls. They were contained in earthen jars. At first, he didn't know the importance of the scrolls. He didn't have an appreciation of what was contained upon them, but he took some of them with him. They finally came into the hands of those who recognized what they were. They were copies of Old Testament Bible books in many cases. A complete copy of Isaiah was among them. A commentary on the book of Habakkuk was among them. 
After that was discovered, they began to look in other nearby caves, and ultimately they found a total of 11 caves containing literally thousands of scrolls. Many of them at least not fully complete, but some of them thankfully were. I would ask you to notice that as these particular scrolls were found, at this point we might again make these interesting observations. The date on these scrolls were easily, in many cases, at least a thousand years older than any full copy of the Old Testament known at that time. In other words, they were dated as far back, again, as the actual turn of the first century. The people that you and I now know who lived in that area and who had all these scrolls, they were known as Essenes. That was a group of people who lived shortly after the time of Jesus. They were people who were very concerned about the way that things of God were being changed by society. They were concerned that the very truth and character of trust and the fullness of God's Old Testament was going to be lost in the passing of time. People were adopting new cultures, new ways of living, and there was less and less appreciation for the truth of the Old Testament. So this group of people separated went off to live by themselves near this Qumram community just east of the Dead Sea. They lived in these caves and they stored the various documents that were so important to them and among them were books of the Old Testament. That's what this Arab boy found. By the way, it seems to me one can't help but wonder after he discovered it, but after, before others who knew what they were could come back and find it, how much looting took place and I wonder how many precious copies were lost. You and I will never know the answer to that, I'm sure. But doesn't it help us appreciate that the following verdict is so interesting? What do you suppose was discovered when that copy of Isaiah began to be compared with the copies of the Old Testament we now have? They were almost identical. Identifying the fact that through the years the Masoretic work and the other copyists had done such a wonderful job in faithfully duplicating the treasure of the Old Testament. It hadn't changed over time in a dramatic way. You and I can have the utmost confidence that when we open the book of Isaiah or Jeremiah or any one of the other Old Testament books, it really is the word that God delivered. The Dead Sea Scrolls help us appreciate that. On the next slide. Here are at least a few pictures. I thought you might want to see one of the caves in which some of these Dead Sea Scrolls were found. It's at the top left. And you might want to see one of the particular scrolls, at least a, a picture of what it contained, the precious Hebrew text that's there. In addition to that, you might notice we come to a, one final set of questions and the lesson tonight will be yours. I hope we've been encouraged to have confidence in the Old Testament. Even though the particular oldest manuscripts don't go back nearly as far as the actual time these things were written, it does challenge us to note this. You may have access to a Bible that has a set of books in it called the Apocrypha. There are some Bibles that still have these books. These apocryphal books, as they're often called, they don't read like your Old Testament books and mine. If you ever look at a Catholic Bible, they have all of these books in them. And many others, of course, do for reference purposes as well. Have you ever wondered 
Why are there not more than 39 books in the Old Testament? Did God write some other books that somebody just failed to include? Are there other inspired books that ought to be there, but man has just failed to incorporate them? That's a good question all of us perhaps ought to at least consider in passing. Perhaps, what about these apocryphal books? I've listed them for you on the next slide, just in case you have an interest in them. They're all there at the left of that slide. First and Second Esdras, Tobit, Judith, additions to Esther, the wisdom of Solomon, Ecclesiasticus, Baruch, the letter of Jeremiah, the song of the three young children, or sometimes that one's called the song of the three Hebrew children, Susanna, Bell and the Dragon, the Prayer of Manasseh, and finally First and Second Maccabees. Now you'll notice those are not a part of any Old Testament that you and I would regularly use. Should these be included in the Bible? Are they inspired of God? As we go back to the previous slide, I would ask you to notice we're going to reach the answer of no in just a moment. But as we do so, would you please notice at least a few statements as to why we can make that statement? All of those books, for example, were not written in Hebrew like the original Old Testament autographs. These were written in Greek. They came much later than any Old Testament book, even Malachi. Not only that, you'll notice that these are the reasons as to why they were rejected then and why you and I should reject them as canonical now. First of all, they were not included by the Hebrew Jews in the New Testament era in the days of Jesus. You and I remember that God especially gave to the Jews, didn't He say? They had the oracles of God. They should have then had an appreciation for what would be characteristic of inspired Scripture and what wouldn't, and they never included them. Never. In addition to that, you may notice Jesus never quoted from them. The inspired apostles never quoted from them. That itself speaks somewhat powerfully, doesn't it? In addition to that, you'll notice that the early Christian writers, those that lived just after the apostolic era, they never considered them canonical either. Finally, might I ask you to notice, and perhaps this is the most troubling thing about them, you'll notice that they contain contradictions and errors. I've listed just a few of them. You and I know from our study of the Old Testament, Nebuchadnezzar was a Babylonian king, and yet the book of Judith says he was an Assyrian king. Now, which was it? If, it, if those kind of books make mistakes like that, how trustworthy are they in anything they say? Look furthermore, those books teach some things that are directly contradicted by the Bible that you and I have. We know that's true. There's a direct quotation in Ecclesiasticus 3 verse 30 that a person is saved explicitly by works without any recourse to faith. Now that cannot be if the New Testament is right. Furthermore, as maybe another example, these books highlight the way of magic for being right with God. That doesn't sound like that's right either. Maybe one final example. These books teach the Immaculate Conception of Mary explicitly. Those in a whole host of additional mistakes and contradictions might be listed. May we say as we come to that observation, these books that are known as the Apocrypha, though some might look upon them, you and I shouldn't rest our faith in them. They're not inspired of God. 
they don't have the characteristics of inspiration. Maybe in light of all those things, it's time to conclude our lesson tonight with one final brief set of thoughts. You and I have studied that we are able to have confidence in 39 Old Testament books. God inspired them and He saw to it that they were preserved and you and I still have them. We can be thankful for the messages they contain for the New Testament writers refer to them in words like this. Romans 15 verse 4. Whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. There's hope to be found in those books and their lessons and principles. May you and I study them with care and study them with diligence. Not only that, we've learned that as God preserved them for us, they are going to make preparation for us for the New Testament. The strongest element to be found in them is the preparation they make for a proper appreciation of the New Testament books. We'll come to them in our next study. Tonight, if there's someone here and you're not a faithful member of the body of Christ, don't leave this building in that condition. Jesus died on the cross that you might be saved. Didn't He Himself say, I came that they might have life and have it more abundantly? John chapter 10, verse number 10. It is true that He came to seek and to save the lost, Luke 19, 10. Tonight, as we've studied the Old Testament, we have in fact used it as a spotlight to appreciate God's greatness and His provision of it. Tonight, if you're not a Christian, why not become so? You need to believe in Jesus, repent of your sins, confess His name as the Son of God, and be baptized. And if we could help you in that way, we'd be happy to do it. If though you need to return to your first love, we'd approach God on your behalf and pray for you. We would just ask you let us know the way we can do that. And upon your repentance and confession, He will forgive you. If you need to come forward tonight, don't delay, but why not come now while together we stand and while we sing?